Welcome to the 283rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome journalist Bob Huber to talk about family life and the pandemic. Reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 26, 2021, there are 3,489,690 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, 591,877 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. In the state of Pennsylvania, 27,137 deaths have resulted from the disease and within Pennsylvania, the death toll from COVID-19 in Philadelphia is 3,645 people who've died. The way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Shirley Coast, baseball's cookie lady, dies at 82. This was written by David Montgomery and appeared May 24th, 2021 in the New York Times, Those We've Lost section. When Shirley Coast and her husband moved from Chicago to North Texas in 1979, they transferred their baseball devotion from the Cubs to the Texas Rangers, attending home games and regularly traveling to the team's spring training camps. During one training session in February 2000, the Rangers pitcher John Wetland playfully gave Mrs. Coast a ride on the back of his Harley. She decided to thank him with a batch of cookies, reaching into the bullpen during a regular season game to hand them over. Other pitchers jokingly protested about being left out, but Mrs. Coast took it seriously. It grew from there, her daughter Donna Vernon said. Over the next two decades, the Coast House in Pantigo in the Dallas-Fort Worth area became a homespun bakery. Mrs. Coast carted dozens of cookies to each game to give to Rangers players and staff, but also for anyone within reach. She estimated that one year she had made as many as 7,000 cookies before she stopped counting. Mrs. Coast died on May, thir May 13th in a hospital in Arlington, Texas. She was 82. The cause was complications of COVID-19, her daughter said. Fans, players, and team officials issued an outpouring of grief on social media. The Rangers mourned her loss in a tweet at a game against the Yankees at Globe Life Field the week after her death. More than 26,000 fans honored her with a moment of silence. Shirley Maxine Gray was born on March 21, 1939 in Pleasant Hill, Missouri to Simon A. Gray and Lottie Francis Gray, who owned an 80-acre farm where they grew vegetables and fruit raised livestock, and produced milk and eggs. 
After high school, Shirley moved to Chicago in 1958 to take a job with American Airlines in reservation sales. There, she met Calvin Coast. We were working in the same office, Mr. Coast said. I enjoyed visiting with her, and one thing led to another. She was very outgoing. After a courtship of movie dates and steak and potato dinners, they married in 1960. In addition to her husband and daughter, Mrs. Coast is survived by a son, Russell S. Coast, a sister, Marilyn F. Grubbs, and five grandchildren. The Coasts moved to Texas when the airline relocated its headquarters to Fort Worth, and Mr. Coast transferred to a position in system scheduling. Mrs. Coast worked in the home. Cal Coast, who later went to work as an usher for the Rangers, also helped out at the cookie factory by making sure the pantry was always fully stocked with sugar and flour. Mrs. Coast produced everything from snickerdoodles to chocolate chip cookies. She named cookies after players. The Darvalicious, a cookie covered in chocolate icing with a cherry in the center, was inspired by the pitcher Hugh Darvish. The outfielder Kevin Minch's baked alter ego was Minch's Munchies, Ritz crackers with melted chocolate bark and peanut butter. Her usual seat in section 135 was marked by a small nameplate, the cookie lady, and anyone sitting or standing relatively close by was likely to get a cookie. The team in 2006 named her its fan of the year and gave her a present, a Rangers Blue KitchenAid stand mixer. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation today, one I've been looking forward to with great anticipation, and let me introduce my guest to you, Bob Huber. Bob Huber is a longtime magazine editor and writer. His home base for the past three decades has been Philadelphia Magazine, where he was features editor for a decade. Bob has written features for Esquire, GQ, Details, and other national magazines, and has won many awards for his journalism. His work has been anthologized in the Best American Legal Writing and also Best American Sports Writing numerous times. Over the past two decades, his 80-plus features for Philadelphia Magazine have provided a comprehensive window into the city's movers and shakers. In 2006, he broke the Bill Cosby sexual assault scandal. Currently, Huber is writing a book with his 32-year-old son, Sam, who has Asperger's, about life on the spectrum from the point of view of both father and son. Bob Huber, welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's an honor. Well, it's good to get a chance to have this time to talk with you. Let me start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today. Well, my wife and I just moved from uh, Philadelphia to uh, near Collingswood, New Jersey, which is about five miles into New Jersey across the Ben Franklin Bridge. Uh, it's a very hot day here in, in the East Coast, uh, probably 93. If I look a little flushed, I took a, a bike ride an hour ago. I'm not sure that was in my best interest, but I had a nice ride. It's really hot. So the pandemic um, situation here is, it, it's really kind of leveled out. I mean, the CDC came out with some numbers very recently that gave us all kind of a lot of confidence. The, the, the vaccinations are rising. They're working great. Um, I was at a coffee shop this morning looking out a window um, in Haddonfield, New Jersey, nearby, and just looking at it, people walking by, people gathering, people hanging at tables, and it could have been pretty much spring of 2019. 
uh, it looked it looked like that, right? So, you know, I want to certainly be aware there are parts of the country, certainly parts of the world where it's not going so swimmingly yet. But here it feels like we're seeing the end of it. And, it, and that feeling is palpable. It's kind of in the air now. We're gearing back up. We had a little dinner party Saturday night, probably the first one we've had. I think it, I'm sure it's the first one we've had. And there were six or eight of us. And the weird thing about it was that it felt normal. You know, it, it, it was just sort of getting back on that bicycle and, and, and getting together with people. Um, God knows other things are not so normal. But it's, it's a good feeling to be thinking, you know, we're, 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 that light at the end of the tunnel is, is pretty bright now. And what about the vaccination situation there? You know, the confidence to have people over to your home is built on the idea that people have vaccine on demand and can get it if they need it at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't even we didn't even at the door kind of ask that question. We just kind of assumed everyone had been vaccinated um, and we could even be wrong about that, but we were probably right. But that's kind of the assumption at this point that people are able to get vaccinated and unless they're really opposed to it, they're, they haven't done it yet, but probably in the crowd we invited over, they, they probably were all vaccinated. Well, we have a number of issues to get to today. Um, I should just note, you know, it's a program note here that um, Bob and I have talked at length on a number of occasions for a magazine piece that you did, Bob, last summer about COVID calls. And I, you know, I was pretty stunned. I mean, my jaw dropped when I got that first e email from you that said, hey, I, you know, um, let's talk about this, this project. And we were joking just before I came on that it's a good thing you asked me then instead of now, because a lot more episodes now that you'd have had to go through. But I actually I mean, wanted to... 40 or 50 at that point. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to have a chance to sort of ask you about this because what I saw in that, those conversations with you was a really curious guy who was trying to piece together a lot of research on disaster in a short period of time in a way to say something yeah. coherent. And people can go and check out that story on, on their own. I thought you did a really, I thought it was a beautiful piece and you summarized often quite complicated research very succinctly. But I, I wonder if you could just sort of cast your mind back to that time because we were still all trying to make sense of the pandemic at yeah. that moment. And maybe just share a little bit of what it was like to kind of drink from the fire hose of disaster research and, you know, discovering there's these people out there who spend all their time thinking about these sorts of things. Well, um, back at you, one of the things that was really touching to me about what you're up to is how you came out at the pandemic from so many angles. And that was really interesting to me. And one of the things that quickly emerged as we started talking and I started interviewing you and I started thinking about it is how um, disasters lift the lid on a lot of things, right? And I think your line is something like disasters reveal the, the fault lines in society. And um, that's been so patently clear, right? And clear in stories I've done after doing a story on you and stories especially in Philadelphia and in inner city Philadelphia. I've done a couple of those. And that's been an amazing thing where the pandemic and also the movement towards social justice 
those things together and they are connected, they are related, but we're in this new sphere of looking at the way um, people of color, especially poor people of color, uh, the way they live, some of the challenges that are that is engendered by racism and poverty. Um, that's that's come forward in really interesting and important and exciting ways. And I know you you know a lot of your conversations have been about that in some way. And I feel like I've, from the time you and I were talking, doing the piece on you, I've kind of come forward with that thinking. That's really the most interesting work I can do. And maybe part of the way I've sort of shifted as a journalist is, you know, we're in this fraught time. We're in this time and this interesting stuff has happened. And I used to kind of think of myself as a journalist. I would kind of do any story that just I felt was interesting in some way, often in an offbeat way. For example, I, I profiled the um, the guy on the inside of the marijuana trade in Philadelphia, a really interesting character, a really interesting story. Would I do that story now? Well, maybe just because it was like exotic and fun, but I think probably not because the world is shifting in ways that I feel like I need to be writing about other things and things, frankly, that feel a little more important. And so for a journalist, it's a very exciting time. You know, as a citizen, it's a sometimes scary and depressing time, but it's it's certainly interesting. Well, Philadelphia is not a place on any day of the week, pre-pandemic or now or after, that you have to look too hard to see social inequality literally in every aspect of the city. And yet the pandemic still exacerbated um, not only you know public health inequalities, but also racial inequalities. And the Black Lives Matter movement um, was powerful in Philadelphia. I mean, you know, the protests in the street um, lasting for weeks, the removal of the Rizzo statue, which I would never would have anticipated um, coming out of that. And then next thing you know, like with so many of these things, nothing can change and then it's gone. Right. Um, you yeah, know, I think you wrote statue. about those things. Yeah, remo removing the Rizzo statue was a really powerful metaphor for where we are and, and a marker for, no, no more, he's gotta go. Um, so that Were was you that. surprised? Like you, I was that, you know, I, I, I completely got it, sort of the movement to do it. And I thought, boy, this is going to take time. This is going to be tough. And then it happens, right? Um, that's one of the exciting things about this time. It does feel like things are moving. Things are happening. People are listening. People want to know. Um, just a note of caution with all that in terms of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and the and the movement toward racial justice. Um, you know, I do think it is a movement. I do think things are happening. But I will add to that when I talk to African American people, many of them involved in it, and ask them about it. There's almost always a bit of a pause when I when I, and my question is, are we moving? Are things changing? Are you optimistic? I ask them along those lines. There's always this pause of, well, I hope so. And that's that to me is not exactly a warning, but the sense of, well, we've been down this road before. We've been optimistic. Barack Obama became president, so forth and so on. But um, things haven't changed so much. Um, yet there is, 
yet there is optimism. You wrote a story for Philadelphia Magazine in November of last year. The title was Inside the Fight to Abolish Police in Philadelphia. And you interviewed, among others, Yane Indogo, um, or Indigo, maybe uh, make sure I pronounce that correctly. Um, And you had recent reporting um, about uh, health inequalities in the city. And and I'd like to hear a little bit about both of these threads you've been following first about the fight to abolish police in Philadelphia, then tell us also about Alice Stanford. Okay. Uh, the other woman involved in the abolish the police, her name is Crystal Strong. So Yana Indigo and Crystal Strong, two Black Lives Matter activists, and their position is not that the police need to be defunded, not that there need to be changes, not that within the police department, things need to happen. Their position is that police need to be abolished, that there's no way the police department, in their view, as racist and corrupt with the history it has, with how it acts, with its paramilitary weapons, with its violence toward the black community, there's no way it can fix itself and it needs to go. Um, You know, the kind of obvious question with that is, well, what what replaces it? And, you know, their answer to that is that it needs to be, uh, the inner city needs to be policed, although I don't think they'd use that word, but it needs to be, it it, it, it needs to be looked at and worked with uh, from within. For example, what we need is uh, um, uh, mental health experts to deal with people who are having some sort of episode or difficulty, and perhaps would be violent, but what they really need is hands-on mental health help. And, you know, police show up, they're armed, and we know what happens in far too many of those situations. There's tension, it escalates, something violent happens often to the person who's having a mental health issue. I mean, that sort of thing is front and center, and what Yana and Crystal are calling for is, look, we need mental health experts, not the police to come in. So what I did was in in handling that piece was um, not particularly to take a hard-edged critical view of what about the really bad guys? You know, I'm not talking about bad black guys. I'm talking about just criminals, right? Because they're there in every community. How do you deal with them? I didn't really chase that down. What I felt like this moment asked for was to give them their due and to, and to say their piece. And it was so powerful to me to, to listen and to hear them because the message was, we grew up in the black community in Philadelphia, in the inner city. All our lives, we have had to deal with police in a way that's been threatening and violent. And what have the police ever delivered to us? And it was so clearly honest and heartfelt and real and powerful. And, you know, it's a moment it felt to me, and I wrote the piece in this vein, to hear them. And and we, we do need to hear them. Um, what we do um, as a solution is complicated, right? And maybe hard to get there. And can we abolish police entirely? Um, I don't know. Philadelphia is con- confronting a moment where by the numbers, 
more black men are going to die in 2021, be murdered than any other year in the history of Philadelphia. So that's where violence lies in the city at the moment. And that's, you know, of course, obviously that's an incredibly awful and daunting thing. You know, the, just I want to read the last uh, couple lines from from this piece that you wrote about defunding the police in Philadelphia. And here you're one of your interviewees um, says, we recognize abolition. For a lot of people, it sounds radical. It sounds unrealistic. For many people, it's hard to imagine a world without police. And she goes on and says, our answer is absolutely nothing. Well, she says, okay, what do police offer that's worth preserving? And our answer, she says, is absolutely nothing. We're also shifting toward what will actually keep us safe. We know that it is community that keeps us safe. We keep ourselves safe. And I was, I was impressed by that statement. And it also, for me, it built a bridge to the pandemic because, I mean, throughout the pandemic, but certainly in the earlier phases too, when we saw, again, the inequalities in society, racial inequality in this case, um, really spotlighted by COVID-19. Right. And so there's something about this um, discussion, this honest discussion about defunding the police and the reality of the way African-Americans have received violence in American history to the pandemic. Yes. And this problem that will maybe also, it's not just the police, but the whole health infrastructure, the whole public health infrastructure. And that's not to um, point fingers at public health officials and workers in Philadelphia who I think work tirelessly, but they work with almost no resources compared to other deeply funded enterprises like policing in America. Right. Let me talk about Ayla Stanford for a moment, if I may. Sure. Um, doing some reporting on her. Ayla Stanford is a pediatric surgeon. She's based just outside of um, Philadelphia in Abington. And her work stopped like, you know, many people in March of, of, of last year. She couldn't, she couldn't operate. Her, she has a private office, a private practice, which closed. So she's sitting home uh, with her three sons, who are 13. She has twins who are 11, three boys. And they're watching TV, watching Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. Then she begins seeing the numbers for inner city Philadelphia in terms of uh, positives for COVID. And they're frightening and scary and higher than other parts of the city. She begins making, making calls, quickly writing letters to authorities, to medical authorities, to city government. What are you doing? What are you doing? She's not getting a response. And she very quickly decides, I'm going to start testing inner city Philadelphia. She begins by, she corrals a couple other medical health people, rents a, a white van, finds 12 people that she can go to their houses and test them. That's day one. She realizes how absurdly inefficient that is. Partners with her pastor to set up testing sites at African-American churches in, in, in the inner city, which of course is the institution, maybe the one institution that the community really trusts. So she sets up these testing sites and it, it, it takes off, it mushrooms. At this point, she's tested, and then that morphed to vaccinating, vaccinating people. And at this point, it's tens of thousands of tests, tens of thousands of vaccinations that, that her program has done. She now has 250-some people working for her. There's a whisper that she'll become the next health commissioner of Philadelphia. <clears throat> it's marvelous, just incredible enterprise that this 
pediatric doctor took and put on her back, of course, at great danger to herself and uh, to the pastors of the churches where they where they came and did this testing. Um, it, it's an amazing thing. And, and so she's gotten a lot of play, a lot of press and so forth. And what she wants to do is set up a clinic, maybe a series of clinics in Philadelphia that be, can become the go-to centers instead of emergency rooms for the inner city. Uh, if you have a cold, come to the clinic. If you have symptoms that might suggest cancer, come to the clinic. That it's a, a stop that has all sorts of specialists and she feels very strongly makes complete sense. This is what the inner city needs. It needs these medical facilities that are for the inner city, that that cater to the inner city, that are tailored to the people who live there. And it is a one of the aspects I love about this, including you know, her energy and, and 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 courage and so forth and how much she cares is that it's it's creating the solution from the from the inside. She may live in suburban Philadelphia, but she's a woman who grew up in North Philadelphia her, herself. She's from Philadelphia. She cares deeply about Philly and loves it and has essentially said, you know what, we need to solve this problem. And by God, she's doing it. So it's it's a pretty incredible story. Thank you for sharing that that story. And it you know makes me think about so many cases in this pandemic where the the moment is met by extraordinary Right. effort and people. Right. And, you know, I guess my question to that is uh, um, that idea of a sort of community approach to healthcare. Uh, one gets the idea, she, she probably had that already in mind, but the pandemic makes the context in which she can say, this is the way now. Yeah. I wonder yeah. what you think about the, the disaster as a driver in that sense of sort of new ideas that are actually old ideas. Well, it certainly is, right? Because now, I mean, a couple of things. She personally has the platform. I mean, she's got the ear of people. She's visible. She's an important person in Philadelphia in the public sphere. And so it makes it possible for her to get players, to get other medical people, to get funding, to get this thing rolling in a, in a way that, you know, maybe would have been much more difficult before. One other aspect of her work I want to talk about is to go back to a central point of your work, which is how disasters take the lid off of things. Just a, a couple of things about um, Ayla's work, and, and there are many markers, but I thought of a couple thinking about talking about her. Early on in her testing, she's at a church in in the inner city in, in Philadelphia, and a woman of some age, she's probably 70 years old, an African-American woman, comes, and she doesn't come to get tested. She comes to lay her eyeballs on Ayla Stanford. She merely wants to see Ayla Stanford. Why? Because she tells Ayla she has never in her life seen an African-American doctor before. Never. And I was just stunned by that. Um, Ayla says she wasn't the only one who said that. Um, but, you know, that's part of blowing the lid off in a sense, right? You get... Through many, many stories like that, you begin to get the sense of well, what is healthcare like in in the inner city, in in Philadelphia. Another quick anecdote was once they started vaccinations at churches in Philly, um, and, and people would come and wait and sit. And this was starting vaccinations early this year when it was still cold. People would bring chairs, they'd be bundled up. Suburban people, 
often white people, got wind of this. If they could rush into Philly and get a vaccine, they start showing up in their Mercedes and their SUVs and popping out in their loafers and blazers with the attitude of, okay, I'm here to get my vaccination. Where do I get my vaccination? And as Ayla talks about that, she, she laughs because it's absurd and funny, but it's also so touching because there's the neighborhood kind of lined up waiting. And, it, you know, this sense of entitlement of white people rushing in, getting what they need, and the inner city is still waiting. And, you know, they've been waiting forever, waiting in line, waiting patiently. And it, it just felt to me like that little anecdote caught something about sort of the difference in expectation, in privilege, right, in, in the way, you know, people with very different histories look at what's possible. And, and one imagines that, you know, she knows that the inverse of that is not true, is not possible. That, and, you know, this, I remember President Biden just a couple weeks ago, he, he made a statement that, you know, very proudly saying, at this point, all Americans are within five miles of somewhere they can get vaccinated. And I thought, you know, in a city like five miles, that's, that's a huge distance to travel for lots of particularly black Philadelphians who wouldn't necessarily be welcomed in those communities if they showed up and said, we're here for our vaccination. That's really true. The problem early on that ALO Stanford quickly discovered is that people needed appointments and they needed a doctor overseeing those appointments. Well, many people in the inner city don't have a primary, right? And that five miles, right? That can be that can be a tough road to hoe. Um, you know, especially if we just go back a few months when there's a great danger of being out and about and sick. If you're taking public transportation to get there, have to take a train and a bus to get that five miles. Well, is that safe? Is that a good idea? Maybe we've come to a point where it's okay now. But, you know, Biden can easily say five miles and make it sound like, you know, you hop into your third car and you're there. Ba-boom. Right. Uh, other people, that's a different story. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with journalist Bob Huber. We've been talking about life in Philadelphia and recent reporting he's been doing about the Black experience of the pandemic in Philadelphia. Bob, I'd like to shift over now, if we could, and talk a bit about um, family and relationships, um, father and son relationships, mother and son relationships. Your writing is is um, is just brilliant on these on these points, and I'm glad we can talk about them. Uh, I'd like to start, actually, talking about a piece you wrote in 2019 about your mom and um this piece appeared in philadelphia magazine people can find it under the title who am i to decide how long my 90 something mother lives and it appeared in april of 2019 so Mm -hmm. about a year before the terrible april of 2020 and i just want to give a just a sense of the tone of the piece you describe a phone conversation you had with your with your mom and then you give us a little bit more to work with here. You say, always mom has been a woman of great precision. Not long before 
she called you and you can talk about what that call was about, but she recognized that she was having a little trouble with her checkbook, making small errors in arithmetic, which drove her crazy. So I took over her finances, except there was a problem. Like a child writing too big, I didn't keep the numbers within the allotted boxes in her check register. So I got fired from that non-paying job and mom found Katie, who's only 80 and does the finances for a lot of the truly old at Pinswood at Newtown, where my mom lives. And that detail, you just get right into that world. Because I think anybody who's dealt with a parent or a grandparent um, who is a person of great um, precision, specificity, they're not going to relinquish that. For, for my grandfather, it was driving. He just wasn't going to relinquish that. There's always something they don't want to give up because that's the essence of who they are in the world. And suddenly you find yourself intervening in that space. Tell us a little bit about the story and about your mom. And it can even be more so, right? A, a, a sort of hard-edged person can become a little harder. But you alluded to the, to the phone call from mom, which is actually the lead of the piece. And um, she calls me one night. And mom had always been a very sharp, very on-the-ball person. Yes, she was losing a little bit the ability to add and subtract in her checkbook. But all the faculties were really there. But then... One night she calls and uh, she says, I just learned something. My, my son is a thief. And since I'm her only son, um, <laughs> uh, I got it. But mom, what are, you, what are you talking about? Well, it turns out that we had had trouble talking. I had had just a cell phone. Our connection wasn't very good. I wanted to get a landline. It just so happened I, I was at mom's apartment one night and saw that she had an extra phone on a shelf she wasn't using. I said, mom, do you mind if I take that? I'm going to get a landline and so that we can talk easier. I'll use landline when we talk. She said, fine, do it. I take the phone. I make a deal with the phone company to you know get service and begin using it and talk to her. The wheels are turning for mom. She decides that that I took that phone meant that I was stealing from her account somehow. I was therefore stealing from the phone company. None of this makes any sense. But the police were about to knock on my door and arrest me uh, because I was I was now a thief. Now, this was never a, a place mom in her right mind would go. Uh, so obviously something had happened. I tried to talk sense. I got nowhere she stuck with that story. And, you know, we hung up with her still hanging on to that story. And I had a very, very long night on the couch thinking, that's it. I've lost her. It's done. Um, now, as people with aged parents probably are thinking, well, not so fast. Because what did happen is mom called me a couple nights later and said, you know, I'm sorry for what I said the other night. She didn't say it was off the wall, but it was clear she realized that it didn't quite make sense. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't up and up. So I thought, okay, maybe it was an episode. Maybe, maybe, maybe she has come back a bit. But that's sort of how it was beginning to go. She would come in and out, and um, so then we began. She had she had a fall, broke a hip, um, was in the hospital, and was going downhill. And we began to talk a little bit as best I could kind of broach the possibility of, well, when do we pull the plug? 
I took her to the hospital one night when there seemed to be a risk of internal bleeding. And I actually had, and mom had said to me pretty bluntly, I'm ready to go, I'm ready to die. I knew she certainly didn't want any invasive, if you see me reaching here, it's because I'm out a window and there's a storm coming, it's blowing everything around here. It, it um, looks like you have a leaf or a plant or something just in front of the camera there, Bob, I don't know. Yeah, well, I'll move that out of the way, it is. Oh, there we go, okay. Yeah. yeah, it sounded like a storm rolling through. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Storm's coming, it's got in front of a window. So mom had been pretty clear, it seemed to me, that you know not only no invasive efforts to keep her alive, but she was ready to go. I take her to the hospital, she's having an episode, they're doing some tests, and it looks like she may have internal bleeding. So I take the specialist aside, and I say, well, if that's the case, and we do nothing, he says, he looks at me and he says, yes, she would just bleed out. She would die. And I felt like, wow, this is a moment, right? And what do I do? I call my wife and talk to her about it. And of course, talk to mom about it. But it, it's clear at that moment, it's really unfair to my mother because it, it's, she's not in a state where she can take that on and really make a decision. And it felt to me like, I'm dropping what she needs from me as her son and putting it on her. And I got lucky because as it turned out, she wasn't bleeding. Um, and I didn't have to decide one way or another, although I'm pretty sure I would have decided, all right, do what you have to do, um, stop the bleeding. But it was a moment of, is the decision to keep her alive the right one? Is it really the, the the true decision she wants? Is it truly the loving decision for mom? I think the answer to that is still kind of up in the air, right? Um, I don't know. Um, we had discussions a little down the road where she would say, you know, it seems like everyone's in kind of a rush for me to die. Like that would come out, right? Sort of the other side of not wanting to die, wanting to stay alive. I wasn't in a rush for her to die. I was in a rush to try to do the right thing. Um, and I, I didn't entirely know what that was, but I'm trying to work it out on my fingers as we go. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a huge general problem we have, right? Because we don't talk about death in a way that we're prepared to really have these conversations often when a loved one is facing something like mom. And, um, you know, euthanasia is a difficult thing, but we should be talking about it. We should be much more open and willing as a country, as a people to, to go there and talk about it. So thank you for sharing sure. those stories about your mom and that difficult situation that you went, went through and, and with her. And this whole pandemic period has been one where we're reckoning with, even what you're just saying, deferred conversations, the conversations that never get had in the United States about what goes on inside the nursing home about, um, you know, end of life decisions. And now suddenly here's this pandemic and it's just wiping out a generation of people so quickly. Yeah. And um, in, a, in a startling way to me, you know, yet, yet another one of those safety nets in society that I sort of assume, well, certainly there's oversight for elder care right. in America. Right. And then you find out, well, 
not what you'd like, not what we'd like to see. How have you reflected, you know, with that on the table in the pandemic and the devastation for older Americans, thinking back to the sort of end of life care decisions you made with your mom? Well, here's the thing that's now on the table. All what you were talking about is difficult stuff. I think it's pretty easy for probably most middle and upper class people in the United States, you know, maybe the Western world, to not think much about death. You know, we kind of make a lot, we don't kind of, we do. We make a lot of assumptions. Um, I'm 67 in pretty good health, and I still think I'm going to live kind of forever. Um, you know, I don't think I'm looking at it realistically. But here's here's the good news of a disaster. The pandemic hit in a way that death was around us and happened in startling and frightening and awful ways, right? Yet I think what it can do and probably has for a lot of people is foment discussions and understanding of, you know, we really need to think about this. We really need to think about the gravity of all of us dying and, you know, what we want that to look like as best we can control it because as we now know, know we maybe don't have a lot of control. I think that's great if it leads to better understandings, discussion, and we we really come to some better understanding of what the end game looks like and honoring that, respecting that, seeing dying as a part of life, difficult place to get, but it sure makes way more sense than ignoring it. Do you get a sense then through this last year that that people are, I don't even know how, how we would measure that or even get to that except just sort of anecdote by anecdote. Of course, that's how a, a good journalist like yourself works. But mm-hmm. I mean, taking the temperature and discussions with family and friends, is people having those discussions, people, you know, building on the pandemic as a time to say, hey, you know, we didn't want to think about this, but here it is. And let's talk about it now. I think so. You know, very directly with my wife, not so much about death and dying as she just turned 60. And one thing she's been saying lately is, you know, people on their deathbed, well, this is a little bit about that. People on their deathbed don't say, you know what, I wish I'd worked a little longer or a little more. It doesn't go that way, right? And so it's kind of going like that for in my house and among friends I have where people are reassessing kind of what they're doing, um, you know, say from the age of 50 or 55 onward, you know, what is the end game for me? How long do I want to work? How important is work really to my essential self and what I'm contributing to the world? Um, My wife and I are developing this plan of buying a van and traveling around the United States, if not further. Um, Good for you. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to do it tomorrow. A lot of planning still needs to happen. We're both still working our 50 or 60, 70 hours a week. We haven't quite gotten off that train, but we're headed there, right? And I think that's, I think that discussion has gotten way larger in among many people. I certainly feel it in my house. And I, I think that's a pretty common discussion. And I think that's wonderful that people are looking at, okay, what is valuable, right? There's another angle on that that um, I've found really interesting in conversations with my, with my father. And um, I think I've told you a little bit about about him in the past when we were talking before. But you know, he lives in Texas, and a guy who always worked very hard, 
and and really saw sort of um, vacation, except for his once a year, you know, family one week vacation to South Padre Island. The rest of the year was for work, yes. and 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 you know, enjoyment would be deferred to retirement. Um, now, thankfully, he got talked out of that a little bit by my stepmother and others in the family, and they did some traveling right towards the end um, of his work career as he was tapering down. But then he retired, and, um, and then this pandemic hits. So, so now he can't enjoy any of those th- you know, f- time with friends, time with family, getting out and about and traveling. And you know, he's shared with me, he's like, in the context of the pandemic, we have trouble talking about things that aren't dying as being tragedies, but he's very open. He said, this feels unfair. That's not the word he used, but that's how I would characterize it. This, you know, here I am, I worked hard and I'm ready for my moment um, just to get up and go have a cup of coffee with a friend and go play around a golf. And I can't, I can't do it. It's like a, and, it's like a little gut punch from God or something, right? Like, you know, what did I do to deserve this, right? Uh-uh. Yeah, I think it's just in the, in the scale of, of misery of the pandemic year, maybe that hasn't surfaced because it's not, you know, it's not something he would feel talking, you know, maybe feel comfortable talking about as much in, in public. Yeah. But it is a form of loss, and it's one I think we have to take, take on board in this time. Yes, yes. I, I'd like to, if I may, talk about, talk about my son a little bit and what we're sure. do. I know we don't have a, a lot of time left, but one of the... It seems to me that one of the things this really, really tough year has offered us is the possibility, the ability to slow down and think through things a little differently. So my older son, Sam, is 32. When he was a teenager, he was diagnosed with Asperger's, which I don't think is a diagnosis anymore, but he's, a, he's on the spectrum. He has autism. Sam's a college graduate. He's married. He has a son. My grandson, Sky, is about to turn four. Sam works with small children on the spectrum, teaching them social cues. So he's a successful guy. How being on the spectrum manifests in Sam is a pretty powerful way. Um, I tried to teach him to drive many years ago when he was in his early 20s. It took the form of going to a college parking lot and we started out turning in ovals, and that that lasted for probably a week or 10 days or two weeks. Driving was very, very difficult for Sam because all these signals, all these things you have to, on some level, pay attention to were coming at him. He didn't know how to organize that. His brain doesn't work that way. And one night we're driving, we're still in the parking lot, and he starts driving onto the grass, headed toward it, a tree and I scream at him to stop, stop. He slams in the brake, he stops. I said, Sam, what what are you doing? What were you looking at? And he says to me that he was obsessed with the tree, looking at the tree, trying to figure out what kind of tree it was. You know, do kids who go to the college sit under that tree? Has somebody had their first beer under that tree? Now all that sounds a little absurd, right? And certainly off the wall. And Sam was kind of embarrassed by it, but he was very honest about it. And the point he made when we later talked about it is the problem is organization in my head. I I can't easily determine what I should pay attention to and what I shouldn't. And if I get overwhelmed, the markers of paying attention and not paying attention get all out of whack and I'm paying attention to the wrong things. 
So it's very easy through something like that, right, to see Sam as, as disabled, even pretty pretty disabled, right? Because he's he, he never did get his driver's license. He would take the test. He got to that point, and he would always get nervous doing the parking thing. He'd hit cones. He took the test six or seven times. For the moment, he's probably given up. So just kind of fast forward to a couple of weeks ago, um, Sam and his mother and I and Sam's wife, Josette, and Skye, and my other son, Nick, and, and Sean, his fiance, spent a weekend in the Poconos north of here, the mountains, on a lake. And we spent one afternoon, the, the lake was very cold, only Sam would go in because Sam is, has that adventuring spirit. And Sky, the about-to-be-four-year-old, was interested in going in, but it was too cold to go in. But he put on his bathing suit. So Sam's in the water, and he picks up Sky, and he carries him into the water and starts to put him in until Sky starts screaming. And then he brings Sky back, sets him on the dock. Sky runs to me, to my lap. But then Sky's very curious, and he goes back to Dad, back to Sam. <laughs> and right. takes him into the water. Same thing again and again and again and again. This went on for an hour an hour and a half. And it was really beautiful because Sam handled that edge of entertaining Sky and bringing him to that moment of discomfort and bringing him back, letting Sky run to me. He handled it beautifully. And it's not that I would think he wouldn't. What really was touching to me was how utterly focused he was for an hour and a half on only and merely giving his son that experience and that pleasure. And to me, that's the other side of the Sam mind, that his focus can do that. His focus can go to something and only something and be there for an hour and a half. And I thought of myself as Sam's father when Sam was four, would I have done that? Well, sure. I would have taken him in the water. We would have done it a couple times. And then I would have thought something like, okay, that's enough of that. I got to go you know, read my Dickens novel or something, right? Some right. business of right. mine would have popped up, some busyness of work or whatever it is, right? And Sam had that, he stuck on that one focus. So it seems to me if we're going to look at Sam as having this disability, has trouble driving, let's look at the whole enchilada of how that mind works and he does this other thing. That's That changes this idea of being disabled to me it objectifies it to me in the sense of he has these qualities his of mind. His mind works in these various ways, and it is. It's not good. It's not bad. It is. And if we can objectify it that way and get out of this idea of someone with autism like Sam is disabled, we're doing him a huge favor and ourselves a huge favor, right? And so Sam and I are writing a book about all this, the perspective mm -hmm. of autism from my perspective and his, what I was like as a father, how at times I escaped and ignored him and worked too much. At times I was on the beam and and right with him. Um, he had a hell of a time reading cues from me because he, um, I'm somewhat animated as we talk, but in ordinary life, probably a little less. I'm a very kind of understated person. For somebody on the spectrum, those cues can be really hard to read. Sam says now that the first time he knew I had strong emotions was we went to a Phillies game and I started booing the Phillies catcher, Darren Dalton, who was in, in a slump. 
And he said, wow, I've got real feeling for baseball. And we shared that. So Sam and I are going to roll around. But the whole point of this in terms of the pandemic, in terms of COVID, to me, clearly it can it can feel far afield. What is what is all this autism thing, father, son, have to do with the pandemic? Well, we've had this opportunity to, you know, kind of where you and I started, Scott. What what's changed? What does it feel like? Well, part of what it feels like is, wait, let's kind of sit back and think what's important and what's not. And I've been able to watch Sam in kind of a new way, I think. You know, part of it's also getting older and more mature and those things. But part of it really is this year I've had where I'm looking at my son in a new, and I think not not only better, but just a more holistic and honest and true way, frankly, and certainly a way that benefits both of us. And the pandemic has helped with that, I believe. Just a reminder, Just a reminder that you're listening to Colin Call and talking to Bobby Huber today. today. Bob, I wonder, Bob, I wonder if, you if you could just say a little bit, more, a little bit about more about just, just how you've been how working, you've been working with on this project, this project. Particularly, particularly, yeah, in the pandemic times, you know, people early on having to make decisions about whether or not they're going to even see their family. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's the what's the work relationship like working on the, a book together? That's not easy. Um, with anybody, not to mention somebody in your own family, not to mention a child. <laughs> it's not easy with anybody. That's right. Um, well, my wife and I made a decision pretty early on that we needed to see Sky, our grandson. We just had to see him. And we took some risk in doing that because Sam and his wife, Josette, were out and about in the world. Um, but we did it and everyone remained healthy. So in terms of the book project, Sam and I were, were able to get together face to face and talk about it. Um, one of the challenges is because of Sam's autism, he's a very creative and interesting writer and a very sloppy writer. And um, so I will, I need to take what he writes and edit it and work with it. I'm used to that. Sometimes I give him a hard time about that. He's a sight reader. Uh, there were times when he was very young and we had episodes sitting at the dining room table before school where I'm trying to get him to sound out words. Sam can't do that. He can't unlock words in that way. So what that means as a reader and writer, as a writer now, he'll write one word that is very different from the word he intends. So it's a pretty interesting process in that way. But what he's got is juice and creativity and the real good. So that's the important thing. He's got that. I can clean it up. You know, that's not so hard. And the thing he's pushing me to do, which is sometimes difficult, and sometimes I put up a little bit of a wall, but is really wonderful is, Dad, you need to emote more on the page. You need to tell me and us and everyone more what it felt like to be the father of me and to be honest with it. And, you know, there was there's a whole story there because um, when Sam was young, uh, I would escape in two ways. I worked too much and I also drank quite a bit. I didn't drink much around him, but it was a useful tool for me to not be home, not be there. And um, so there's that, right? Especially the work thing, I think. <laughs> and I need to go there. I need to, I need to not, not just own it, 
but but get into the feeling of it and the feeling of having a child I love dearly who was struggling and watching that and trying to figure out what to do about that and to some extent avoiding those things because that's what one does, right? Many marriages of with autistic kids um, don't go well and end up breaking up because there's a lot of tension, a lot of intensity around kids who are so needy, right? And that's where Sam is pushing me to go. So you're right, Scott, it's not easy writing a book with anyone. It's not easy with a family member. It's not easy when my son, hey, I'm the writer here, dude, is pushing me to be more right, <laughs> emotive. Right. But I mean, we haven't had fights over it. And if I put up a little wall in my conversation with Sam, which maybe I've done two or three times, I've gone home and thought, you know what? He was right. And I'll text him, Sam, thanks for the conversation. So we're going down that road. It's a very positive thing in the relationship. And it's the only way to make the book good. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, you know, I there's, a, there's a lot of dead air there if you don't get into some real conversation. And I wonder, again, I don't know how you measure this, but I feel like people are having maybe some deeper sharing and conversations through this pandemic time and also tying back to something we were talking about earlier. When death is on the front page of the newspaper every day, it's a little harder just to talk about the game. It is harder to talk about the game. And I agree with you completely. Zoom doesn't tolerate small talk. And I would add, or the way I think of small talk often is it's not talking about how the Phillies catcher did last night so much as just kind of those little odd or interesting or fun moments with somebody that you have sitting across the table from them that Zoom doesn't really offer. It's like you have to talk in paragraphs in a sense, right? And that's a hard way to conduct a relationship. Um, you know, I think it kind of goes fine when you and I are talking about these ideas and thoughts and stories and so forth. Okay, we can do that fine through Zoom. It's probably pretty close to what it would be if we're sitting in a studio together. But if you're my son or four buddies trying to catch up, you know, the Zoom thing is tricky that way, right? It, it's You don't get all the cues. You're not reading all the kind of ins and outs of that person, that corporal person being in, in front of you. And you know, I like to make people laugh. It's a little harder on Zoom. So, <laughs> we're, almost we're almost out of time. I just wanted to get to one more quick question as we're on the way out. And uh, by the way, looking forward to reading that book that yeah, you and good. Sam are working on. Um, so you're a novelist also. You're attentive to everything having to do with how a story is put together, including characters. We talked about Ayla Stanford. talked about already some people who are in our sort of collective imagination of this pandemic, carrying that load of the story a little bit. Donald Trump too much, others not enough. I wonder as you sort of think about this time as a novelist, who are the characters or the character types that you're looking to if you had to tell this, tell this story as a narrative, the narrative of this pandemic? I think what fascinates me, because in some ways I'm there personally, it's it's sort of this evolution and maybe stronger than that, a confrontation sometimes with what am I doing? What value am I giving to the world? Am I doing something that really matters? Should I shift or switch what I'm doing? It's a little bit of what I was saying earlier about the sort of stories 
I now do has shifted. And, um, you know, should I do other things besides I've done some volunteer work, you know, some hands-on volunteer work. And in terms of characters, like Ayla Stanford is a good character in that sense to me, right? Because she, here she is a highly successful surgeon sitting at home. I mean, she could have kept sitting at home. What does she do? She comes to the floor and begins this big program. Her life is flipped. It'll never be the same, you know, in a good way, because she's now on this path of establishing a clinic and working with people in a new way. The decisions to do that, discussions she had with her husband, probably, so forth and so on, not operating on babies anymore or not as much, all that makes, all that decision-making about who I am and what I should do, um, you know, especially when you, what I would call the Trumpian side of things, which would be just greed and getting out of this, what I can get out of it, um, we're at a, at a time when it's so fraught with people needing so much and there being so much danger in the world. We all need to think about that. We all need to kind of go there. We all need to call out people who could care less about taking part in, you know, I'll say it, making things better, you know? Um, and those are the characters that interest and fascinate me because of the sides of myself that have been, confronted in a good way, I believe, and, and I want to tease out. And every novelist is on some level writing about himself or herself, of course. Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me tomorrow for a discussion of the pandemic and pandemic life under authoritarianism. I'll be talking with Ruth Carlitz. Join me for that, and I just want to thank my guest, Bob Huber, um, Bob, first of all, for writing about COVID calls, but I think more importantly for all the writing you've been doing um, through this time and through this conversation today. Uh, really great to speak with you. Yeah, you as well, Scott. It was a privilege writing about you and what you're up to. And as I said before, all the different angles you're taking into this time are really necessary and really important, and, and you're doing a terrific job with that. So I'm, I'm honored to, to be on and, and contribute a tiny bit to that. So thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Yeah.